Welcome back to Hour 3 of the Jason Rand Show. Josh Hammer filling in for Jason. If you like what you hear, check out my own show, The Josh Hammer Show on Apple or Spotify. Thrilled to be guest hosting for Jason, as always. Let's hear what's trending. What's trending? The drug crisis. It's trending and it's sad to talk about, but America is currently in the throes of one of its worst drug overdose crises in its entire history. Now, there are so few people talking about this. It's actually become a very passionate topic for me for personal reasons, among others, which is when my cousin, may his memory be a blessing, tragically overdosed and died from fentanyl, fentanyl-laced cocaine. It was, it's not obvious exactly what it was, but something along those lines coming up in almost six years now. So I, I've really adopted this issue as one of kind of my pet issues, if you will. And again, there were so few people talking about this for any number of reasons. The drug lobby has become a very powerful lobby at the local level, at the state level, even at the federal level, for sure. A lot of money kind of flows behind drug liberalization, legalization, decriminalization programs here. Even on the right, you have many who kind of take a more libertarian-leaning position when it comes to drug-related issues. In fact, Vivek Ramaswamy, going back to our first hour of the program, Vivek Ramaswamy recently had a horrific quote where he said that he tended to favor decriminalization of even hard drugs like cocaine and heroin, and then he tried to walk it back. So it's not really clear where Vivek stands on this. It's not really clear where Vivek stands on a lot of things. But again, for whatever reason, the interests are decisively dramatically even, in favor of further liberalization, legalization, and less against and a firm anti-drug policy. That notwithstanding the data, the data on this is, is galling. It is galling stuff. Joe Biden's drug czar earlier this year found that last year in 2022, there were 106,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States of America. If you do the math, you want to do that, you divide it up by 365 days in, in, of the, in the year. You're talking about an airplane, a 747, falling out of the sky every day. Primarily youngsters. Not exclusively, but primarily 18 to 35-year-olds demographic. That 106,000 annual drug overdose death number, the baseline of, off of which to compare that to? In 1992, after the George H.W. Bush presidency gave way to the Clinton presidency, after you had this 12-year kind of Nancy Reagan-led war on drugs campaign, the, the, the this is your brain on drugs, all of that, that famous 1980s-era advertising. In 1992... The annual drug overdose deaths number was between five and six thousand. So it has increased roughly twenty to twenty-one times. I, uh, it's difficult to even try to visualize this, and it's it's just an issue that far too few are talking about. It obviously is made that much more worse by the porous, wide-open nature of the United States' southern border, where there are drugs flying in basically every day via the cartels 
the cartels that oftentimes are working hand-in-hand with international terrorist organizations, Hezbollah, the Iran-backed Lebanese Shiite terrorist organization, has a huge footprint here in our own hemisphere. Horrific stuff, just absolutely horrific. And again, it's become quite personal for me. And it should be personal for you as well, Seattle, because the data fresh out from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that the state of Washington saw 25.3% more reported drug overdose deaths this March, March 2023, over the previous year, March 2022. In raw numbers, that equates from roughly 2,300 drug overdose deaths in the month of March 2022 to almost 3,000 in March 2023. Now, the neighbors to the south, Oregon, by a 17-point margin, this was a ballot initiative that really kind of flew over the radar. In the 2020 election, by a 17-point margin, our neighbors to the south, Oregon, approved ballot measure 110, which per The Atlantic, in an article that just came out last month, it eliminated criminal penalties for possessing small amounts of any drug, including cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. Now, it's almost hard not to laugh, although it is a very dire subject we're dealing with here. Here is how The Atlantic styled its headline and subhead for this article. Headline, what happened when Oregon decriminalized hard drugs? The subhead, a bold reform effort hasn't gone as planned. Really? Well, who in the world could have seen that coming? What did you guys think would happen when you voted to decriminalize some of the worst filth that human beings can put into their bodies. Seriously, what did you expect would happen? Well, it hasn't gone well. In virtually no instance has a drug decriminalization or drug legalization effort that I'm aware of actually gone well. I say that as a former resident of Denver, Colorado. Has anyone ever spent any time in downtown Denver over the past few years? My God. One of the first states to legalize marijuana hasn't exactly gone well there either. Drug fatalities, DWIs, it's all up. It's all up. Now, earlier this week, it turns out that Oregon has had somewhat of a change of heart. They approved this horrific measure, Measure 110, the decriminalization of hard drugs measure, by a whopping 73 points, they mentioned. Excuse me, 17 points. But they've had somewhat of a change of heart at least internally, at the, at the top tier of the program, because the, the program manager herself was hired in August 2021. I just saw earlier this week, it turns out that she resigned in a scathing letter last month where she accused the Oregon Health Authority of underfunding the program and various other sorts of misdeeds. So... Let's go ahead and listen to an excerpt of former Measure 110 program manager Dr. Angela Carter's resignation letter. 
My working experience with the Oregon Health Authority has been one of the worst and most disheartening experiences of my life. They said they weren't given the authority to hire the number of staff members that the program needs in order to function, and that they and the staff all worked long hours, up to 90 hours a week. They wrote OHA leadership was maliciously negligent in its lack of support for program implementation and operations. OHA leadership disregarded and ignored my repeated, direct, and clear written and verbal requests that appropriate assistance, staffing, and resources. So hard to know exactly what to make of that. A lot of this possibly is a pretext as well. Difficult to know without knowing kind of the subjective mentality of Angela Carter and, and her staff. But it clearly is not going well if an outlet as liberal as The Atlantic, which is kind of one of the organs of the leftist corporate press, if even The Atlantic is starting to sound the alarm about this, again, the subheadline that they used, quote, a bold reform effort hasn't gone as planned. Again, this is The Atlantic, quote, early results of this reform effort, the first of its kind in any state, are now coming into view, and so far they are not encouraging. Well, I know it's not encouraging – in Washington state, obviously, is this 25 plus percent increase in drug overdose deaths. Again, just absolutely horrific stuff, an issue that I've become very passionate about. Just say no, not just to drugs. But if you are a voter, say no to efforts to decriminalize and legalize this utter filth. If you think it's going to go well, then you are you are sorely mistaken. So. Later on in the program, in, in hour three of the program, we're, we're going to have an interview here with, with R.A. Lightstone, who served in the Trump administration. He served in the U.S. Embassy in Israel during the Trump administration. He was the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, David Freeman's right-hand man. He was, he was the number two guy. He was instrumental in securing the Abraham Accords peace treaty. He, he wrote a book on this last year, R.A. Lightstone did, called Let My People Know. You should go ahead and check that out. And the reason that I brought on Aria, I actually brought him on to my own show, The Josh Hammer Show, and we're kind of just going to take a, a snip preview of that because the full interview won't be released until next week. But the reason that I brought on Aria Lightstone here is we just had the three-year anniversary of the first Abraham Accord Agreement. It was August 13th, 2020, when when t towards the very tail end of the Trump administration, when Israel and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, agreed they were going to formally recognize each other, they were going to set up embassies, have diplomatic relations, all of that. Bahrain joined very shortly thereafter. Then you had that iconic, really just beautiful, for lack of a better term, that beautiful signing of the Abraham Accords at the White House in September of 2020 with Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, and the United States all represented. Morocco soon joined the Abraham Accords. Sudan kind of sort of joined the Abraham Accords. That's a little bit more of a complicated tale. But the Biden administration has not exactly, shall we say, warmly embraced and guided the Abraham Accords towards greater success, towards greater fruition. In fact, they took a long time to even acknowledge the term Abraham Accords, which is really weird in a sense because the nature of the term Abraham Accords is, of course, referring to the biblical patriarch Abraham, 
the father of all three great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I mean, it, it's kind of right up liberals' alley, isn't it? This notion of you know inter interfaith dialogue, inter interfaith re relations, all of that. So very peculiar. There's no reason for the Biden administration to have done that other than just as a pure symbolic middle finger to the administration that preceded it, the Trump administration. So it took them forever to even get on board with the very nature of the term Abraham Accords. And most recently, what the Biden administration has done is they've sought to undermine the Accords in every possible way, whether they realize it or not. So one thing that the Abraham Accords did in reaching this flourishing peace, and it, it is and has been a flourishing peace, not a cold peace, but a warm peace between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain, and perhaps to a slightly lesser extent, Morocco. It's been a warm peace where money has traded hands, where tourists have flown from one country to the other, where diplomatic outposts have been set up. I mean, in the UAE, uh, in Dubai, I was just there in December, January, in the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, the iconic building in downtown Dubai, there, there was a kosher restaurant there. It's really just remarkable. So this, so this is a warm peace. It's not a cold peace like Israel has with its two other Arab peace, quote-unquote, partners, Egypt and Jordan, Jordan being the coldest of all cold peace. Now, this is a warm peace. But the Biden administration has sought to undermine it in every possible way. For starters, they have tried to mollycoddle the Iranian regime. So most recently, I mean, the Biden administration for years now – and really, ever since it got back into power, Biden, of course, being effectively the third Barack Obama term, all the old actors are back in positions of power. One of those old actors, by the way, Robert Malley, the most pro-Iran sycophant of the entire Obama administration, you might say, who is reprising his not-so-great role here in the Biden administration. He has actually had his security clearance suspended pending active investigation, ongoing investigation as to whether he has missed – mishandled classified documents. So spicy stuff there for sure. But the Biden administration has tried to get Iran back into some sort of nuclear deal that President Trump correctly took the United States out of back in 2017, 2018 or so, in the earlier years of his presidency. And most recently, he has paid a $6 billion ransom. This is Joe Biden. He has paid a $6 billion ransom, billion dollars, $6 billion ransom to the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism, the Iranian regime, in exchange for freeing Americans who are in prison there, who are hostages of the Iranian regime. And I, I feel, obviously horrible what those people have been through, horrible what their family's been through, but it, it doesn't take a genius to discern that actions like this will only incentivize this most rogue of all rogue regimes to just take further hostages and get more money to try to spread and sow chaos all throughout the region and the world, especially as it works closer towards its nuclear program. Now, Anthony Blinken, the not-so-bright United States Secretary of State, has purported to state or stipulate that Iran's $6 billion lump sum ransom fee here can only be used for, quote-unquote, humanitarian needs like medical or health, blah, blah, blah. First of all, even if that were true, and I don't buy it for a second, money is obviously fungible. $6 billion in the Iranian regime's coffers therefore frees up $6 billion elsewhere to use for exporting Shiite militias, Hezbollah, nuclear program, 
all the other sorted activities that Iran already funds. It's just not how money works, basically. So that is very lame. But bringing it back to the Abraham Accords, the reason why this is all relevant, the big question has been, will Saudi Arabia, which is the most important Arab country in the region, will they join the Abraham Accords? The thinking goes that if the Saudis join the Abraham Accords, everyone else will fall in line. They are the custodians of Islam's holiest sites. That is the most important Arab country for any number of reasons. Mohammed bin Salman, the young crown prince there, is reform-minded as well. It seems like the outlines of a plan actually really are there in place, in fact. So do you think the U.S. giving $6 billion to Iran – the very country that the Saudis fear, the Emiratis, Bahrainis, the Israelis, that all of them fear, is a $6 billion ransom payment going to make them more or less likely to join the Accords? I mean, the, the question, unfortunately, really goes ahead and answers itself. So color me skeptical that Saudi will be able to join the Accords or will feel confident enough to join them under Joe Biden – Let's listen to a clip to kind of tease our, our next hour of Arya Lightstone. He shares his perspective on the Abraham Accords that he helped negotiate. Look, the Accords could have fallen apart in May of 2021 under a new administration, a new prime minister of Israel, rockets firing from Gaza, if you remember that, over 2,000. Uh, Israel needing to be appropriately so, but forceful in their response to, to Hamas, essentially attacking all of Israel with their rockets, and it became... Very hairy. So we'll listen to more of that in the next hour. So he's he, he's he sounds confident about the Abraham Accords holding up. No one doubts they will hold up. The question is whether they will be expanded. That question remains to be seen. Count me, unfortunately, as something of a skeptic on that front. Finally, one other story that's really kind of come up here over the past couple of days. There is this ridiculous, ridiculous controversy. This manufactured controversy involving Bradley Cooper, who for what my money is worth is one of Hollywood's greatest stars. I, I think Bradley Cooper is an, is an exceptionally talented actor. He is playing the, the great composer Leonard Bernstein in a soon-to-be-released film for which Martin Scorsese, the great director, also is on hand as a producer. Bradley Cooper is playing Leonard Bernstein in this film – Leonard Bernstein, of course, is is Jewish. Bradley Cooper is not. And to get into character, one of the things that Bradley Cooper has apparently done just to kind of more closely physically resemble Leonard Bernstein is to put on a prosthetic nose of, of sorts. And this has led to kind of the usual howls and screams of identity politics. How could you do this? Anti-Semitism. Blah, blah, blah. Well, it is first worth pointing out that Leonard Bernstein's children who are still alive collectively released a statement where they said this is nonsense. What are you guys talking about? Bradley Cooper is just trying to play the role the most authentically he can. And even and, and his children say – they say our father, if he were still alive, would have had no problem with this whatsoever. But you still see some folks, primarily on the left, trying to gin up this outrage over this. You know, I guess in theory, the argument is that, oh, 
you know, only a, only a Jew can play a Jew, only a Christian can play a Christian on screen, all of that stuff. Look, as a Jew myself, and and in a decently observant, very traditional one at that, I have no issue with this. None. Zero. I mean, I mean, this registers on my radar at a negative number. There are so many reasons to be concerned about anti-Semitism in America and, and around the world right now, not least of which is the, the Iranian regime, which we just mentioned, of course. This is just not one of them. I mean, for anyone who is trying to get themselves worked up over this, I, I mean, what is wrong with you? Don't you have bigger and more important things to care about? Just calm down. I, Bradley Cooper is a great actor. He's a very, very talented actor. If this makes him look more similar to Leonard Bernstein, the late great composer who he is portraying on screen, and if Leonard Bernstein's children then come out collectively and say that they have no problem with it, then then who the heck are you to start playing the outrage game? It's just a total misprioritization of of resources to to even pretend to care about this. I I I I quite literally rolled my eyes when I saw this article come across my feed. So I I I don't know what. The people are so up in arms in about this. I mean, if we go down the rabbit hole where you have to be this or you have to have the exact same body part to portray someone, give me a break. Who wants to live in that world? Give me a break. Our friend and local tax expert, Greg Nunn, None Better Tax Resolution, is growing and looking for tax specialists. If you're passionate about fighting taxpayers and interested, then give Greg Nunn a call. 425-947-1967. Again, you've got Josh Hammer filling in for Jason Rance. We'll be right back. Sammamish, Kent, Olympia, Everett. This is the Big Local on the Jason Ranch Show. Centralia, Lakewood. Stories about you, not about Seattle. Welcome back to the Jason Ranch Show. Josh Hammer filling in today for Jason Ranch. The Big Local is brought to you by Alpine Specialty, Specialty Services online at alpineclean.com. So this is the part of the show where we ignore Seattle and talk about the commu- communities that you live in. So... Our first headline today is from Pierce County. Three teens arrested after armed robberies, police pursuit in Pierce County. The article begins, three teenagers were arrested after two armed robberies and a police pursuit that ended in Interstate 5 in in Pierce County. Seems like there was a a, a robbing and gunpoint. And then just about 10 minutes, 10 minutes later, there was a, a second armed robbery. This was really just coming across the transom this morning, early Thursday morning. Let me go ahead and listen to what the Tacoma Police Department spokesperson Shelby Boyd had to say about this. All the events that we have going on, all of the, the summer programs, the after school programs, the before school programs, the church programs, there's so much in this community for these youth, but there's something that's still grabbing them and they're gravitating toward that life. And the something there is what we really should be trying to figure out. What What is... This something and in a setting like this where you do have if we're you know assuming that we we take the police department spokesperson at at her word and why would we why would we not assuming that you do have the after school programs the church programs mentorship fellowship programs you know that is the million dollar question as to why why do you have kids that are are, are just so frequently drawn to crime 
And for what my money is worth, I, I have two theories that come immediately to mind. One is you just can't ignore just the chronic truancy absence pandemic that the work from home COVID era really kind of put into effect where people just had too much time on their hands. We saw this all the time in COVID. You have way too much time on your hands, too much time when you're working from home. You're, you're going to school over Zoom from home. And then obviously exacerbating that is the fact that we have a culture of lawlessness that has pervaded the entire country. You have so many high profile acts these days, whether it was in New York City like a week and a half ago, that riot in Union Square, Los Angeles, downtown, has become a total hellhole with, with, with the homelessness. It's a culture of lawlessness, particularly in Soros-backed prosecutions, but the whole culture tragically seems like it has seeped all across the country. Producer Max, what's your, what's your take on this story? Yeah, I mean, there's any number of, of different angles you could take on this one, especially down in Tacoma, where we've just seen crime run absolutely rampant. It's sad. And, you know, we even had, we had a council candidate on from Tacoma earlier in the week talking about, you know, what can be done about crime. Uh, obviously, Tacoma has been a hotbed for it. And really, plenty of different jurisdictions around the area have had that problem with youth crime, with juvenile crime. And I, I do think, Josh, that goes back to what you're saying. These kids don't have enough things to do in that that program that Shelby Boyd, the spokesperson, was referring to. I remember we talked about that at the time, Jason and I, a couple months back, and it seemed like a, you know, a good program. Sometimes you can tell when these programs just, you know, aren't really going to offer a lot that truly are going to interest kids. But that program seemed like a half-decent one, but it's just, it's sad that we see so many kids at such young ages, Josh, go down the, this path towards crime. It's very sad. It's really sad, and it kind of becomes almost of a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point. If you just keep on getting into trouble with the law, it really becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Really just sad stuff. But speaking of speaking of hotbeds of criminal activity, the city of Kent, Washington, has filed a lawsuit to declare the Phoenix Court Apartments a public nuisance. So the city actually called the complex a, quote, hotbed of criminal activity. And they've alleged that the Management and property owners there have just simply not done enough to put a stop to it. Let's go ahead and listen now to the Kent, Washington police chief, Rafael Padilla. He has a theory as to the uptick in violent incidents there. There has been a lot of disputes and conflicts with people that are armed regarding drug trafficking. And so we're seeing that drive crime. There you go. There you go. It's what we we're just talking about earlier in this hour pertaining to this tragic increase in drug overdose deaths in Washington pertaining to our neighbor to the south Oregon's completely failed experiment in measure 110 to decriminalize heroin methamphetamine other drugs it's a drug crisis the drug crisis and the crime crisis folks go hand in hand they are inseparable from one another even attempts to decriminalize drugs you, you you might think that it would actually lower crime i mean that's kind of implicit in the term decriminalize but it actually does not do anything of the sort because the kind of people that are attracted to the drug trade and have been attracted to the drug trade for hundreds and hundreds of years are inherently prone to crime if, if you look at federal data the, the doj has uh has federal data on this you know this is kind of the lie of the so-called low-level drug offender which is behind a lot of so-called criminal justice reform measures 
if you look at the kind of folks who are ultimately in prison at both a state level and indeed the DOJ has data at a federal level, if you look at those who are in prison for worse crimes, aggravated assaults, homicide, rape, I mean some of the worst of the worst crimes, a shockingly high number of them actually start with drug-related crimes. So obviously what the police chief here, Rafael Padilla, is saying seems to me just to be transparently and, and clearly the case. Producer Max, what, what's your take on this one? Yeah, it's interesting that this one went down in, in Kent, of all places, because we've done some coverage on, on the Kent Police Department. Uh, simple fact is, they're like the only police department that considers themselves fully staffed here in, in the, the greater Puget Sound area. So they're, And they're still struggling with preventing these violent incidents. And another thing that strikes me is, that, you know, just declaring that this apartment complex is a public nuisance. We saw some of that a couple of weeks ago in the city that we don't talk about on this segment. Uh, some motels on Aurora Avenue where prostitution had become extremely frequent. So it's interesting to see cities taking some action of their own towards these properties that are causing major problems. You know, is it the property's fault that these crimes are happening? Hard to say, but it's interesting. At least the city is trying to take some action. Yeah, and you know, public nuisance. I'm happy to point that out. It's it's not a common phrase. There's actually an underlying tort. If you want to go back to law, there's actually a, a tort called a public nuisance. There were, during the whole opioid litigation, there actually were were some plaintiffs who were basically accusing the the big pharma firms of a public nuisance. Typically, you hear about a private nuisance where someone's polluting the river, it's, it's affecting someone downstream, someone's playing music a little too loud at night, but the very nature of public nuisance, not something that you hear about in the news all the time, so that definitely does stand out quite a bit here. Finally, we have a story about a local union, so the International Longshore and Warehouse Local Chapter 23 is collecting donations to help the people of Maui, Hawaii, who have just been so terribly devastated by this absolutely horrific, horrific fire. The death toll in that fire now reaching over 100 people. My, my God, a whole town destroyed, the former seat of the Kingdom of Hawaii. It's really, really, really just sad stuff. And this is this is here in, in Fife. So let's go ahead and listen to what Jared Faker, he is with International Longshore and Warehouse, Local Chapter 23. Let's go ahead and hear what he says about just trying to help in any way they can. Well, the ILW is a, has a hundred year history of giving back to our community. We represent workers, but we also represent the community at large. And whenever we see people in need in our community, in our nation, in the world, you know, we try to jump in and help. So, you know, since the fires began, the Red Cross... And Hawaii's governments have provided more than 4,200 overnight shelters. I mean, look, to, to an extent, some obviously some cleanup job has been done. Many of us, including myself, have been have been critical and think that more should be done. So kudos, kudos certainly to the folks here in Fife who are, who are trying to organize. At the end of the day, this is really what America is all about, isn't it? I mean, this is what America is all about, is coming together in times of need to help out our fellow Americans. I mean, I grew up in the New York area. I, I, I was in seventh grade when 9-11 happened. I remember very well, I remember vividly, all the commercials on TV for blood drives, go to your local Red Cross, donate blood for the 9-11 victims, the firefighters, the, the police officers, all, all the various first responders and heroes from that horrible, horrible, tragic day. This is what Americans do. 
This is what Americans fundamentally do. At the so, good for Jared Faker with um, ILWU local chapter twenty three and five raising money. And you know we'll have a little more to say about the situation, the the tragic tragic situation in Maui. We'll have a little more to say about that at the top of the next hour. Certainly, the Biden administration, to put it mildly, has not done a great job there. But we're gonna have a little more to say about that. So. Coming up, though, at 4.45, you pick the news. Story number one, relative of the murder hornet found along the East Coast in the United States for the first time, or story number two, Native American group promising Anheuser-Busch-style boycott of commanders backs Cleveland Guardian's name change. Let us know what story you want to hear. Text story one or story two to 1-800-465-8770. That's 1-800-465-8770. Your favorite story coming up right after this on The Jason Rand Show with Josh Hammer today. You pick the topic on The Jason Rand Show. So you do pick the topic, and you have picked Native American group promising Anheuser-Busch-style boycott of Commanders backs Cleveland Guardians name change. So the, the, the basic story here is earlier this week in the news, it turned out that a group by the name of Native American Guardians Association, or NAGA for sure, not to be confused with MAGA, apparently the similarly sounding acronym, NAGA has launched a petition, specifically founder Eunice Davidson is trying to trying to get the Washington commanders, formerly known as the Washington Redskins, to revert their name. And now he's basically, or now his group, is trying to do the same thing to the Cleveland Guardians, formerly known as the Cleveland Indians, the baseball franchise as well. So this petition pertaining to the baseball franchise has garnered apparently nearly a 1,000 signatures by midday Tuesday. And specifically what he is saying is he is saying that he will organize a massive boycott, quote, Similar to Anheuser-Busch, if these things do not happen. So the Redskins franchise changed its name to the Washington football team until they could found until they could um, come around to a permanent name after the 2019 season, and they have now settled in the Washington Commanders for years and years. The Washington Redskins team name was the subject of. Tons of controversy. I first became aware of this way back. I'm a big sports fan. I grew up a big New York Giants football fan back in the New York area. The Giants are, are big rivals with the Redskins or the, the Commanders, whatever we're calling them. I, I first became aware of this controversy at a fairly young age. And if I recall, there was a poll from the early 2000s, sometime around 03, 04, 05. There was a poll that at the time showed that – I think the Washington Post commissioned this poll. It showed that 90 percent of – American Indians who were polled at that time had no problem whatsoever, actually, with with the term Washington Redskins, despite the fact that your you know your your typical kind of overeducated PhD, oftentimes white liberal crowd, they were the ones really not the American Indians themselves, but they were the ones who had a huge problem with this. Daniel Snyder, the very controversial former owner of the Redskins slash Commanders, finally finally caved on this. Gave the the lefties what they wanted after the 2019. Now, now you have this kind of counter counter boycott. Very similar thing happened to the 
to the Cleveland Indians. They changed their name to the Guardians or basically around the same time starting in, in 2020, if I recall. That one always made less sense to me because you 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 could plausibly argue that the term Redskins is offensive. Uh, I don't see it as that offensive, but at least you, at least you could argue that. You could argue that because it's talking about the color of the skin, whatever. The, the Cleveland Indians, I mean, I, I, I failed to see what was even allegedly offensive about that team name. Now, the the people who stirred up trouble in this particular context, what they were seemingly griping about, if I recall, was not necessarily the team name, but the the mascot and the logo who showed an American Indian with like a feather in the cap and perhaps had larger teeth if memory serves. But this was fundamentally not something worth getting worked up over. Very similar to what we were talking about earlier on the hour about the this ridiculous manufactured controversy about Bradley Cooper playing Leonard Bernstein in the upcoming movie Maestro. I mean, it, there is nothing inherently problematic with people representing other things, for lack of a better term, than what they are, whether that is Bradley Cooper, a non-Jew, playing a Jew like Leonard Bernstein, whether or, not, or whether or not that is non-Indian players putting on the uniform of the erstwhile Cleveland Indians or the erstwhile Washington Redskins. But, you know, good for the Naga founder here, Eunice Davidson, who clearly has no patience for the woke ideology, especially if he is invoking Anheuser-Busch there. Anheuser-Busch, I mean, they, they were pummeled, obviously. They were just totally pummeled in the few months. They're, they're still getting pummeled. I mean, the, the, the stock price, the last I checked, hadn't fallen necessarily further than it did after its initial precipitous drop, but it certainly has has not gotten anywhere near back to what it was. And to an extent, of course, the the old saying, if you, if you go woke, you go broke, seems to apply greater than ever, Target which infamously had the the quote-unquote tuck-friendly merchandise for the kids, if you remember correctly, the clothing. Target was the latest company earlier this week to report that its earnings were way, way lower than expected. And, you know, generally speaking, the reason that I think that NAGA, the Native American Guardians organization, the reason that, why I think that they might be onto something here, because more generally, it seems like the, the woke backlash really has – begun in earnest. If companies like Target, Anheuser-Busch, InBev, I mean, these these are blue-chip major companies. If, if companies like that are starting to report that they are taking it, that they are really just feeling it in their bottom line after these pushbacks, how about the fact that ESG is no longer going to be considered for companies' ratings, it was either Fitch or S&P, one of the two major companies that, that decided that they would say that ESG has become so politicized that they're not even going to take it into consideration anymore. So it seems like the right is actually winning on a lot of these bread-and-butter woke issues. From where I sit, it seems like the right is also winning on the tempest in a teapot that has been the the Florida African-American Civil War history, this this whole ridiculous manufactured controversy, speaking of manufactured controversies involving Kamala Harris, and they were alleging well, – it's not worth getting into. But the woke backlash seemingly has has begun here. And you know, I personally would like to see the Washington Redskins name go back. I personally would like to see the Cleveland Indians name 
go back. I, as a traditionalist and as a sports fan, these are the teams that I grew up rooting for. I was not aware that they were allegedly offensive, at least in the case of the Cleveland Indians, until the Great Awakening itself, the summer of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter, Antifa protests and all of that. I mean, that is the unmistakable backdrop of all of this fabricated nonsense was the Great Awakening that took place in America. And that really ultimately is also why it is very, very encouraging to see folks like Naga and its founder, Eunice Davidson, pushing back. So here, I mean, here's what their petition reads. The petition says, quote, the name Cleveland Indians serves as a reminder of our shared history and the struggles we have overcome. By reinstating this name, we acknowledge the role our culture has played in shaping this nation. We recognize the importance of sensitivity in addressing cultural concerns, and we believe that honoring the name Cleveland Indians can be a symbol of unity and respect. I mean, what is the counter argument to that? Again, I mentioned that when the Washington Post did this poll on the Redskins years ago, it was 90-10 in favor of I'm not offended. Now, the numbers in that had changed for sure, to be fair, by the time that Daniel Snyder finally yanked the term Redskins and put in place just the amorphous Washington football team. But those numbers changed in the broader context of this greater, broad, great awakening, which, again, my theory is that we've reached something of a pushback. We have finally reached a turning point when it comes to the woke wars in America. So I find this story inspiring. It's yet another another reason to be inspired here. Good stuff. I'm rooting for it to succeed. Once again, Josh Hammer here filling in for Jason Rantz on The Jason Rantz Show. 